A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along to the programme, love to hear your thoughts and uh, comments this morning. And uh, all of the papers today, obviously very, very sad coverage in the paper of Little Matthew's uh, funeral yesterday. And we will talk about that um, later on on the programme. But the other story that's absolutely dominating the papers uh, today is to do with RTE. And I'll give the headline to Fiona Sheen in the Irish Independent, uh, who has captioned it, a Valentine Day a Valentine's Day massacre for RTE as bombshell payoff bouquet leaves stink. And that's over, I think, the nine no-shows, the the nine people from either former RTE or former board members of RTE who were asked to attend, but all declined for various reasons. And RTE now, of course, we discovered after yesterday, is facing a substantial tax bill. And this is to do with a secret six-figure golden hand Handshake that was made to uh, the former executive, Breed O'Keefe, who was the chief financial officer. It is the latest scandal. Could there be any more scandals? This is the latest one to rock uh, RTE bosses at the station because yesterday it was revealed that the former chief financial officer received an exit payment of €450,000 and Kevin Backhurst was asked to repeat the figure just to make sure that everybody heard it the first time round €450,000. What a gorgeous golden handshake to get. Her deal was, was it appears was made with the former Director General D. Forbes but of course what was the big bombshell yesterday was it wasn't signed off by management and the RTE HR manager Emer Cusack who came under a lot of questioning uh, yesterday. She uh, processed the payment and the big one is she's still working with RTE. She has now been told since that her position was not tenable, certainly in the eyes of uh, the public. But the big one is because Breda O'Keefe was not entitled to this redundancy package, there is now a tax liability uh, arising from it because the redundancy did not meet the criteria for tax relief to be applied. If it was a normal redundancy package and her job was gone, then she would be entitled to the handshake, even though it would be it would have been quite a, a large one. But the, 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 you don't have to pay tax on it. But, of course, when it isn't, 
it isn't a proper redundancy uh, package. It doesn't meet the criteria under tax laws. It means now there is a tax liability and RTE has acknowledged it doesn't have an estimate of the potential cost of the tax bill arriving from Breather O'Keefe's redundancy and the broadcaster has already reported the payment to revenue and has confirmed it will have to foot the tax bill. The tax bill does not fall at the feet of uh, Breathe O'Keefe, even though she got the €450,000 because it was wrongly given out as a redundancy packet. It's RTE have to pay the tax bill. I mean, that is just rubbing salt into the womb. And that bombshell announcement came, of course, during what was a very tense exchanges at the Oireachtas Media Committee yesterday. And I don't know if we can get the figures for the number of people that were watching online, but it was really, it was just gripping yesterday from uh, start to finish. Now, it emerged that uh, Emer Cusack, that's the head of HR, who, as I say, is still in RTE. She processed this redundancy payment, but she did it on instruction from D. Forbes. She also signed a letter that went to Breathe O'Keefe saying that the redundancy payment had been approved by the executive when in fact it hadn't been approved by the executive. And then it was last night the Public Accounts Committee chair because this was the media committee, it wasn't the Public Accounts Committee they were before, uh, but the PAC chair, Brian Stanley, he now feels that Breathe O'Keefe should pay back the 450,000 exit package. She should pay it back because she wasn't entitled to it. He said and he puts it, he lays it out very clearly. He says there was no redundancy here. Now, I don't know whether she resigned, whether she was due to resign, whether she retired. I don't know exactly what happened when, when, when she left, but it certainly wasn't a redundancy package. And as Brian Stanley uh, points out, the post wasn't extinguished. The post was filled immediately by another person when she left. So he said it's very clear that that wasn't a redundancy. So there's no justification for the 450000 euro. He described it as a goodbye package. He says and he wants her to pay it back. Now he does accept there isn't any legal basis for her to pay back the money but he says is there not a moral basis for this? Should she she not sit and reflect and say I wasn't entitled to this money should she give it back? He He's the one also who has suggested that Emer Cusack, the HR uh, manager, he reckons she should consider her position at the National Broadcaster. And I think the other uh, the other bombshell yesterday was when um, it was when Kevin Backhurst disclosed that the RTE executive in charge of the toy show, that's the former director of strategy, Rory Coveney. Uh, He resigned from his position in the wake of the scandal around the loss of money from the toy show, the musical, uh, which lost uh, 2.3 million euro. But he received an exit package. Now, he was pushed as to what was his exit package, but he cited legal reasons that he couldn't say how much Rory Coveney gave. But very few people resign and particularly resign over something that they have done and, and you know, the public would say done badly, the amount of money that was lost on Toy Show, the, the musical. But people, when they resign, don't then get handed exit packages. Well, I certainly have never heard of a, of a company. If somebody resigns, they leave. And that is that. Now, Kevin Backhurst is backing up the current or the, the HR manager, Emer Cusack, uh, he says that he has full confidence uh, in uh, her. But he says he has absolute sympathy for the staff who are outraged about Breathe 
Breathers package and he says he, he admitted that he's outraged himself over the fact that she walked away uh, with €450,000 that she literally was not uh, entitled uh, to. And the other thing that struck me when I was watching it yesterday was when Kevin Backers was talking about Breathers uh, O'Keefe and I don't know if this was before or after he announced the €450,000 but he said at the Oireachtas committee meeting yesterday that he had received a legal a legal letter from Breda O'Keefe uh, outlining a number of things she wanted him to say on her behalf and his response back to her was you are invited you can come and say it yourself and I thought when I heard that I thought kudos to Kevin Backhurst for that but goodness me what a level of arrogance you get invited to go, go along to the Oireachtas committee meeting you decide not to go but instead you'll outline a list of things you once said on your behalf so I thought Kevin Backhurst was right to say no way Jose You've got the invite, come yourself. And I'm not the only one using the word arrogance when it comes to RTE because I saw the Taoiseach yesterday saying he described it as a culture of arrogance among RTE senior staff and he said because of that that that, that, that led to a level of poor governance. He uh, was also, he also said that anyone who had been asked to attend the Oireachtas committees to answer questions about the national broadcaster, he says every one of them should do so. Now he was obviously this was a quote from him yesterday morning he was ahead of the Oireachtas uh, committee meetings but at that stage I think we knew and he knew that there was a number of individuals, I think it's nine in total that uh, didn't uh, attend. I mean it, it included and I don't think anybody expected the former RTE Director General who everybody wants to hear from let's be honest, uh, Dee Forbes she didn't attend. She provided a medical cert for the reason that she wasn't there. The committee chair Nee Smith uh, then said that the RTE's former Chief Financial Officer uh, Breathe O'Keefe and the former Chair of the RTE Board Moya Doherty they were also asked to attend but both said they were unavailable didn't give the reason why they were unavailable and then the Director of Strategy Rory Coveney he was also invited but he didn't take up the offer but there was nine in total uh, didn't go along and there's a lot of talk now uh, on all nine, but especially D Forbes, should they be compelled to attend? Because the Rockdust Committee does have powers. I mean, normally what happens at a Rockdust Committee, they will invite people to come along, in the majority of cases, uh, people come along and, the, and they, they put across their side of whatever is being uh, discussed. But there, there are powers to compel people to attend. So do you think the likes of, of Dee Forbes, should she be compelled to attend? Should Rory Coveney now uh, come back uh, again and try to explain more about what happened to her toy show, the musical? Should Breathe O'Keefe uh, come back in to explain how she walked away with €450,000 when she, as Chief Financial Officer, would have known that her position wasn't being made redundant? I'd love to hear from her as to how as a financial officer who knows how redundancy packages wor- work, how did she think it was OK for her to walk away with a redundancy package of €450,000? So your thoughts are, are welcomed. Would you like to see these people these people compelled? And in some way, do they have to be compelled? Do they have to attend? Or are we never going to get to the bottom of it? I know one of the Oireachtas committee members yesterday said straight out to Kevin Backhurst, who says, look, I'm trying to clean up the act here. I'm trying to make sure that none of this can ever happen again. But he was asked straight out, you know, are there to be any more bombshells? Because it seems every time they're brought 
before some kind of a committee, there's another bombshell, there's another bombshell. I mean, when are we going to get to the end of it? And is is the only way to completely draw a line over what was going on in RTE, is it to have the likes of a D Forbes actually in to an Oireachtas committee meeting to explain why various things happened and would that for once and for all then put it to bed. Uh, your thoughts welcomed. I see the phone lines lit up when I started to talk about RTE. People really, really annoyed uh, with the latest uh, bombshells that we got yesterday at the Oireachtas Joint Committee on uh, Tourism, Culture, Arts, Sports and uh, Media. Helen wants to know how much did uh, Simon Coveney's brother Rory uh, get? There was no talk about the amount he received. No, there wasn't uh, Helen, all that was stated was he resigned and then he got an exit package but the RT Director General Kevin Backhurst said he couldn't provide the detail of Rory Coveney's financial package or the financial package of some of the others uh, and he cited legal reasons, I don't know what the legal reasons were but he wasn't able to um, give the figure, the figure he was happy to give was uh, Breathe O'Keefe. Uh, Ellen in Middleton says her fear is if they abolish the TV licence and all the money comes from the Exchequer which obviously is what RTE wants and we know uh, Sinn Féin, we spoke about it yesterday, Sinn Féin are also in favour of this, that it will all come from Exchequer funding and no one will pay a TV licence. Ellen's worry is, if it all comes from Exchequer funding, would RTE then have free range to waste what is ultimately public uh, money? They will continue to fork out on large uh, wages, etc. So she fears the TV licence. She reckons there's some kind of accountability if the TV licence remains in place. Niall in Mitchestown says, all those who received money incorrectly, uh, like Breather O'Keefe, should be made to pay it back. Pat in Bandon says, has anybody seen Dee Forbes in West Cork? Is she still living in West Cork? Would she please please not go before the Oireachtas? Now in fairness to Dee Forbes, she did hand in a medical cert for her reason uh, for not uh, attending. So she's obviously still very unwell, but hopefully she'll get better uh, soon. But Pat uh, urges Dee Forbes to go before the Oireachtas Committee, be truthful, get everything out in the open rather than uh, hiding. Um, It's at the end of the day, this is the hard working cash of Irish people that has been misspent. We need to get the truth out there and then, yeah, that's my point on it, draw a line under uh, the sand. Uh, Stephen uh, says yes, every single cent of that €450,000 should be paid back. Stephen goes so far as to say at the end of the day, it's our money. Jer in Canturk says, where were the accountants during all of uh, this? Who were they? And then they're called independent advisors after the damage is done. And Donna Donovan says it's shock after shock after shock when it comes to this crowd, i.e. RTE. John is suggesting we need a grand jury, you know, like they do in America, where you have to attend. You don't have any choice and you are compelled to attend. And if you do not, it's a very serious offence where a person could end up in jail if they don't attend the grand jury. John reckons it warrants this they would go then for any investigation in they could use them then for any investigation in this country going forward also a lot of these a lot of these people feel they're above the law and the uh, the people of Ireland you don't ask us about this or that is their attitude and that attitude needs to change and I'm assuming Kevin Backhurst John would say to you that's what he's trying to do he's trying to change that as the teacher says that 
that sense of arrogance that appears to have been within RTE. Families struggling to receive respite services will be really taken aback to hear that a family of a person with disabilities living here in Cork were offered respite care, but they were offered it at the other end of the country, in County Donegal, raising the issue. Deputy Michael Moynihan, who is, of course, chair of the Oireachtas Committee on Disability Matters, who uh, joins me. Uh, Good morning to you, Michael. Good morning. And I have to say, I had to read this one twice because I, I thought it was a misprint when I was reading it first and without identifying anyone. Can you share that story with us of how a family was offered Donegal for respite from Cork? Yes, uh, I suppose, you know, as families would be in contact with uh, the HSE looking for respite and uh, going back maybe some six or seven years ago, respite was then uh, regionalised and nationalised rather than within the service providers locally or indeed the CHOs locally. And uh, one person had contacted looking for respite for a particular period and for a particular reason, uh, you know, a set of circumstances without going into the details. And the uh, person that was on, uh, you know, on behalf of the state said, yes, we can look at respite, but it could be in Donegal, uh, it could be in Louth, and they looked at various other places. But the point here is, like, you know, families, when they are looking for respite, they look, they, 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 you know, they go to the end of the tether. They really need the break. They need it. And then sometimes, you know, for whatever uh, multiple issues, uh, family issues or, 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 you know, appointments or medical issues or whatever, that they would need respite for a loved one. And the last thing they're looking for is respite for a loved one. And then to be hit with this kind of, you know, stonewalling or almost attitude you know, you know, you would that as if it was coming out of their own pocket, and they hit a vulnerable family or a person who was looking for extra help with this line. Well, we can consider it, but it would be Donegal or it could be Love. But they're not seriously expecting any family to take up an offer well, of respite in Donegal, well, or is it a box ticking exercise? Oh well, we did offer you respite, and you just didn't take it. Well, unfortunately, um, the evidence that. I would have was that it had been offered yes. oh, uh, and like the difficulty with it is that you know the, the, no family in Cork are going to accept that and you know they didn't have to look at their other challenges or how they're going to resolve the issue that they have for whatever reason but like how could you sit at the other end of a phone Uh, with a member or family or a person, a human being, and they are looking for respite for their loved one for whatever reason. And then knowing full well where they lived and knowing full well, yes, we understand the challenges and the capacity that's there within the disability services for respite. But even to allow yourself to say that to a vulnerable person who's looking for, uh, you know, I, 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 I struggle to find at times how that attitude has been allowed to creep in uh, to the state services when they are talking about people with disabilities. And in terms of our committee, you know, several times I have said it after uh, harrowing evidence and difficult evidence that we have got from the lived experience, from family members, or indeed for people with disabilities themselves. The attitude of some people is almost as if people with disabilities are a burden on the state. They are human beings. 
they are entitled to the exact same dignity as any able-bodied person. And if we look at it from stats, like there's almost a fifth of those uh, in, in, in all over the world that have a disability of one type or another. And we have to make sure that we are integrating them. But we're also, you know, people that, families with people with disabilities, you know, they have huge challenges. They are trying to, you know, manage their day-to-day lives. They're trying to make sure that they're doing their best for their loved ones. And all of that adds up. And And they're also trying to look after themselves as the primary carer. And that's one of the things that respite does when when it works and when it works uh, well. It gives the carer the break to recharge the batteries in order to continue to provide that care. Absolutely. And if you think of it, what the carer does, what the primary carer is doing and the alleviation of the burden on the state to provide the care, like they are saving the state multiple of uh, euros, of thousands of euros a year. Uh, and, and like all carers who are doing such massive work, they're saving the state millions of euros. But they are, they come at a point where they're burdened out for, you know, whatever reason, that and they do need to recharge the batteries or they do need for uh, medical reasons or for family circumstances or whatever, they need the respite. And the least, we, like, we, you know, I certainly are striving to make sure that we're increasing the capacity of respite throughout the country. Like we have a number of plans, a number of initiatives, and I keep saying that unless we increase the capacity, we're not going to be able to meet the unmet need within the community. But the least we might give those who are in contact with with state services is respect, not to be giving them this, you know, we will offer it, we will put you down, but it could be done at all. Like, how do you feel when you're at the other end of the phone and you have that given back to you about your loved one and about the challenges that are you facing? You feel very alone, you feel very vulnerable and very let down. And, like, it, it just simply is not, like, Beggar's belief. It just it beggar's belief. belief. And your committee uh, on disability matters. I know. I think you've had about twenty public uh, hearings. What sort of stories do you hear from families, uh, particularly when it comes to respite? Well, what we are hearing, I suppose, the non-existent uh, availability of respite. Uh, going back over before I t- uh, took on this role uh, in twenty twenty, you know, I constantly raised the issue about disabilities uh, and the respite, uh, but. We have, like, we would see people that would be coming to us ordinarily through our constituency work and coming to us through the, co- the committee as well, and they would be looking for respite for a certain event or certain a set of circumstances that, that families would have. And they would be looking at it six, eight, ten months ahead, trying to make sure that they would have respite for that particular period of time. And what they are finding is the lack of respite, that there is very little respite there, you know, going back, 10, 12 years ago, there was adequate respite. There is no longer. And, like, I look at, you know, the organisations that come before us, and when we challenge the HSE in it as well, they have accepted that there is a capacity issue. But, you know, families who would have got maybe one, two or three weeks in the year respite, they no longer is available. Well, we, well, we saw when the pandemic hit, I mean, respite virtually closed uh, down and the majority of that has never returned. Have you ever been able to get an explanation as to why we were not even at least back to pre-pandemic levels? Well, 
I suppose the first instance is, right, the, the pandemic showed us, and, and we have laid it out in, in, in various reports that we've done. Like the 20 meetings you're talking about is, is, is the current report that we've done. This is report number, the documentation number five on it. But the first thing that, the, the, in the, when the pandemic hit, the first thing that was done was that the people with disabilities were abandoned. No other way of putting it. They were abandoned by the state. They were sent, they were, their families had to take care of them. And it had huge implications and has still huge implications for those who were in care or who, those who were receiving respite or those who were in day services or who, who were receiving any state services from the state. And I think like how we, you know, the question is how do we treat our vulnerable people? But we have to make sure that if that circumstances ever again happen in a hundred years time or whenever that the people most vulnerable disabled people are looked after but we like we have some sections and some organized some groups that have never reopened their respite and they have cited you know staffing and and funding and so forth but we have tried like i mean there has been a huge amount of money spent uh increased money put in to the budgets over the last three or four years to, for capital investment and for revenue investment to bring the services up to standard. It is still a long ways off. Yeah, because so, someone is making the point, we know that there is a problem with uh, respite. What are the solutions? Is it down to money? It is down to money. It is down to building capacity. It is down to the bricks and mortar. You know, going back over a number of years, uh, the CAS program in the Department of the Environment, Housing and the local authorities was a very good source of getting money for uh, disability organisations to build additional accommodation, to build residential units and to add to what they've had. That has really dried up because of the complexities of that uh, of that scheme now. We had the uh, county and city managers and the HSE before us at a meeting before Christmas and we went through what were the stops, what were the difficulties, why were the challenges. We had some of the disability organisations in the week before. They gave us what the challenges were. We put that to the, the local authorities and to the uh, the uh, HSE in a joint meeting because sometimes if you don't have them all together one will say one thing and the other will say the other thing and to try and I suppose there is capital money available to try and release that money and try and get the this, the service uh, organisations. But then it's getting the workers, isn't it? And then you have because because most services will will straight away defend why their respite house is closed and they say we can't get staff. And in recruitment, it, like the, there was an embargo brought in in relation to recruitment. There is no embargo in relation to recruitment of people uh, in the disability sector. That was one thing that, you know, immediately after I was brought in, uh, I was very strong on it internally, saying this cannot happen because we are already at a very low base. That has been rescinded and uh, organisations can recruit. But, like, there, you know, recruitment and retention, you know, we've seen uh, in the Section 39 organisations going back, you know, there was a different between them and the section 30. Well, that's a pay, it's a pay issue. The, the, the pay parity. That has been, 
you know, there's been a package put in place to try and resolve that. We were out as a disability committee. We were in Ballyfermot yesterday looking at the at the National Learning Network and the work that they were doing. But we all forgot the challenges. And I suppose the other challenge that came across and has come across in, in my own area as well, it, you know, uniformity within the uh, the state services, the HSE, in how they deal with it. The different CHOs have different interpretations of different ways of doing it. It's We're only a small island. We should have uniformity of how we get money available. And like, you know, as we have plans afoot within the Duhalla region to increase the capacity for respite at the moment, uh, it's uh, with the planning authority at the moment, and there's a lot of work has been done behind the scenes in relation to that, and hopefully that will come true. But it is, as a whole, it is increasing the capacity within the, um, increasing the capacity right across the communities. Okay. And, and, and it's, and it's, a, a, pro, it's a problem that's only going to get worse. It's a, an issue I, I constantly seem to be referencing an ageing population. We're going to need uh, more and more bed capacity, particularly when it comes to respite, in order to allow older people to remain at home for as long as possible. I'll have to leave it there, uh, Michael, though. Thank you for that and thanks for joining us. Uh, good morning to you. That is uh, Deputy Michael Moynihan, who is the chair of the Oireachtas Committee on Disability Matters. And I've just uh, seen on the news wires that the Thánis that Micheál Martin, he's rowing in now on the RTE bombshell from yesterday. And he said the exit package that was given to the former Chief Financial Officer, Breda O'Keefe, should be reassessed. He says if the amount paid out was too high... The proper package should be identified and anything above that, he said, should be handed back. So there you go, the Taunister looking for Breda O'Keefe uh, to pay back some, if not all, of that €450,000. 0818 Cork Today on C103. With McCarthy Insurance Group, proud sponsors of the Cork GAA Club Football Leagues and Championships. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Yesterday saw the heartbreaking uh, funeral Mass of the Angels for little Matthew Healy, which was held at the Church of the Immaculate Conception in Watergrass Hill. Southern correspondent with the Irish Independent, Ralph Regal, was there. And uh, Ralph uh, joins me. Good morning to you, Ralph. Good morning, Patricia. Um, his heartbroken dad, James, spoke about the kind of little boy that Matthew was, and it was heartbreaking to listen to. It, it was, Patricia, and there's no words of mine can do justice to the power and the eloquence um, of James Healy yesterday. Um, he started and you could hear his voice quavering and he more or less told mourners that, you know, his emotions were, were he didn't know if the emotions would allow him to get through and to finish what he had to say, but with remarkable courage and um, dignity, he paid the most moving of eulogies to his little boy. Um, you know, he described Matthew as he said it was it was a, it was a remarkable phrase. He actually said that when his son was born, he was so overcome with love for this beautiful little boy. He said it was like being hit by a train. And I think any parent could identify with that because, you know, you do anything for your children and they just it's as if your life before children really didn't have meaning it's that the, the, you know the, the birth of children can give you such a a lift and such inspiration and he really beautifully captured that in how he talked about um, his son his interests the things they did together the activities 
Um, he said that, when, you know, when, when Matthew was small, he said he was a beautiful little boy. And he said he lost count the number of people that would strangers that would come up to him on the street and comment about what a what a gorgeous little fella he was. He had blonde hair, he had blue eyes, and he said, you know, he was the most affectionate little boy. He said that he had great um a love of life, that if he knew no one when he arrived at an event, everyone would know Matthew when he came to leave. And it was just very powerful, the personal stories, the little the sense of humor between the father and the son. And it was clear that there was a very, very special bond between the two. I mean, at one point, um, Mr. Healy described Matthew and himself as like two peas in a pod. You know, he said that they were his sister used to jokingly refer to Matthew and James as the dream team because they did everything together. And, you know, it, it really, you could, I looked around and I could see people, there were people actually fighting back tears. Yeah. It was just so, so upsetting. And, you know, it, it really, it, it finished on the most powerful and the most harrowing of notes in that he, he basically turned to the coffin and he, he he referred to Matthew variously through it as, you know, his little lad, his little man, his chief, his buddy. And he looked at the coffin and basically said, you know, I'm so sorry I wasn't there to save you on Friday morning. And you really, I mean, I could hear people, there were chokes um, around me of people were really struggling to control their emotions because it was just so desperately, tragically sad, you know. Yeah, the rawness of, the rawness of, of his grief. And the, what I loved was typical of any little six-year-old boy, items like uh, Lego, uh, jelly babies and, and a cycling helmet symbolising his little life. Yeah, it, it really does strike home to you that this was like a six-year-old little boy. I mean, there were jellies, there was his cycling helmet, there was Lego toys. and There the, the really was a moment of light relief earlier when when um, a, a Mr. Healy's um, brother Dan was talking and he said that, you know, Matthew loved cooking with his aunt and they would come up with all kinds of weird concoctions. <laughs> Um, like nuclear green cakes and luminous orange, I think it was um, pumpkin something. But of course, all the men in the family would then be forced to eat these concoctions <laughs> that he yes. had made. And like, it was just it was your typical fun-loving, mischief-loving little boy. And, you know, the saddest part, I think, of what he said was, of what, of what Mr. Healy says was, you know, he said he would have grown into a fine, strong dignified, decent man. But he said that future was taken away from him. And he said, you know, Matthew will forever remember, will forever remain six years old. Oh, bless them all. And the, the local people um, turned out in, in huge numbers and, and, and lined the, the, the village of, of Watergrass Hill. Yeah, very much so. And not just Watercress Hill. I think it's important to point out that, you know, there were people from Waterford. There were people, I mean, Ringeskiddy. Um, when people in Ringeskiddy realised that um, Matthew's funeral cortege was going to conclude at the island crematorium, the residents association there very kindly and very decently asked people to come out and stand by the route just as a gesture of respect oh. um, for Matthew and a gesture of solidarity 
I think with the, with the heartbroken family. Oh, that was lovely. That was lovely. Okay, our thoughts and uh, prayers with all of uh, Matthew's family. It's such a, a tragic uh, case. And another family, uh, Ralph, that I really am thinking of is the family of uh, Limerick, father of two, Jason Corbett, who died at the hands of Tom and Molly Martin in North Carolina back in 2015. The news has come out that they're both to receive early prison release. What are you hearing? Yeah, it's it's almost beyond belief at this point, Patricia, because um, like the family, it's as if the family haven't gone through enough that they still have to go through yet more um, changes with the release dates. Um, a lot of your listeners will remember that, um, you know, Tom and Molly Martins, Tom, of course, is a, a retired FBI agent and counterintelligence operative. His daughter, Molly, who's now 40 years old, she's a former nanny. She's a person with a long history of mental health issues. And she had travelled to Ireland to work as a nanny for Jason Corbett's two children. Of course, Mr. Corbett lost his first wife, um, Mags, to a respiratory attack when the two children were aged two years and under. And they began a relationship and married. But Mr. Corbett was beaten to death in the early hours of August the 2nd, 2015, um, by Tom and Molly Martins. And they used a metal baseball bat and a concrete paving slab to inflict horrific injuries on the Limerick businessman. Now, they maintained that they acted in self-defence. However, a lot of the evidence pointed towards premeditation, and that premeditation was borne out by a jury uh, in uh, July and August of 2017, when a jury in Davidson County in North Carolina unanimously convicted them of the second-degree murder of Mr. Corbett, and they were given 20 to 25-year prison sentences. They immediately appealed that, And the North Carolina Supreme Court eventually overturned the conviction and quashed the sentences and ordered a retrial. But your listeners will remember that last November, there was a plea bargain deal reached between Tom and Molly Martins and North Carolina prosecutors, which meant that the murder charge was withdrawn once they agreed to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter. And it then reverted to a sentencing hearing where Judge David Hall imposed the sentence having heard the outline evidence. But again, that outline evidence was only evidence that was agreed with the defense. So huge portions of the prosecution case from 2017 were not put before the judge. Ultimately, the judge decided Tom and Molly had served three years and eight months in prison on their original sentence, and he gave them a further seven months. That was in November, and there was absolute consternation and outrage in December when the North Carolina Department of Corrections said that Tom and Molly would be released in in December, just one month after the court hearing. Eventually, it emerged that that was a mistake. There had been an error made in calculating their early release and parole details. And the North Carolina authorities said, no, they would now have to serve until June the 27th. So all of this, of course, was very upsetting for the family in Limerick, having just gone through what they saw as the failure to deliver justice for Jason in the sentencing hearing, suddenly seeing his two killers propose to get out after just four weeks. And lo and behold, in December, when the June 27th um, release date was confirmed, um, we, we learned the Irish Independent had it two days ago that in actual fact, Tom is now going to get out three weeks earlier. He's going to get out on June the 26th. And what we confirmed last night is that Molly will be given the same early release date. Why? 
Um, initially, the, the thought was that this was might have been down to um, good behaviour in custody, um, their engagement with various prison work and reform programmes, their age, their prior lack of convictions. But now we've realised that what the, the, ma- the major reason for the three weeks being taken off their sentence is that they're being given extra credit for the time that they had spent in custody. And this includes when they were being questioned, when they were on remand for their trial, and for um, some of the, the, the dates that they were behind bars while they were ra- awaiting their verdict from the North Carolina Supreme Court. So they're being given three weeks extra um, in acknowledgement of time that they had spent in custody or with the police as part of the original investigation. Were, was Jason's family in Limerick informed before the media got to hear about it? In this case, they were, and okay. the, the, how they discovered it was that they had registered with a victim support network in North Carolina. And under North Carolina law, there are various victim support groups that are legally informed of offender releases. And what happened in this case was the victim support group were notified that Tom Martins had received a change of release date, that it was brought forward from June the 27th to June the 6th, and they informed the family. And they also informed the family yesterday that under the same um, arrangements, Molly's release date will also be brought forward to June the 6th. Will there be any restrictions placed on them following their release? Um, essentially, there won't. There are, are only two small restrictions. One is that they will remain on parole for 12 months. And what that means is that they must uh, deal with probation services in North Carolina. And of course, they cannot reoffend. So if there's any major, re, you know, offences committed by either within 12 months, well, then it would have a bearing in terms of their sentence. And the other thing that they cannot do is because when they're released, they will both be convicted felons and they will not be allowed to live together. Oh, that's an interesting one. At any point in the future? Well, no, I think once the parole um, oh, for the, period for is the over, they, of the parole. They may, uh, certainly there may be legal submissions on the basis that because of their f- family connections um, or because of possibly because of Molly's um, uh, health and, and mental health history that they may make exceptions. But certainly as of now, they will both be uh, convicted felons. They will both have offender numbers and they will not be allowed to live together. But they will go back to living as normal a life as possible while the Corbett's live with Jason's loss for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. And I can't put it any better than Tracy. I mean, who has been very eloquent throughout this entire um, tragedy for the family. And she basically said that Tom and Molly Martins got four years and uh, three months for killing a a, a devoted father of two in the most horrific circumstances. His family have received a life sentence without any hope of, of, of remission. Okay, listen, uh, thank you for that, uh, Ralph, uh, as always, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Patricia. Good morning. Uh, Good morning to you. That is uh, Ralph Regal, who is Southern correspondent of the Irish Independent, but of course, particularly on that uh, Tom and Molly Martin's uh, case, he's been uh, covering that case almost from the start. And there's that excellent book that he wrote. He mentioned Tracy there. That's uh, Jason's uh, sister, Tracy Corbett uh, Lynch. And they co-wrote a book called uh, My Brother Jason, which outlines uh, the whole story uh, behind the murder of uh, Jason Corbett. So we think of the Corbett family uh, as well today. 0818 103 103.
three. Uh, John Paul uh, taking your calls. Uh, somebody says, Patricia, what kind of a judicial system do they have in the US? It's who you are seems to matter, not what you've done. My sympathies go to Jason Corbett's family in uh, Limerick. Tough on them. That is from a Kerry listener. Thank you for that. We've been uh, contacted by Deputy Michael Creed, Fine Gael, uh, Dáil Deputy for Cork North West. And he contacted us this morning because he says there's concerns in the Inchigila area this week that the former Lake Hotel is going to house males seeking international protection. The hotel uh, had been housing Ukrainian refugees. So Michael Creed made some inquiries. He got directly on to the Department of uh, Integration. And Michael Creed contacted us this morning to say he's been informed by Roderick O'Gorman's department that from next Tuesday, the hotel... This is the former Lake Hotel in Inchigila, will house families with school-going children who are looking for international protection. Now, unfortunately, Michael Creed uh, was... Excuse me, I was just about to sneeze. <laughs> Sorry. Um, fortunately, Michael Creed was just about to go on a train and obviously you can't talk to somebody on a train. It's, um, it's absolutely dress, but um, it's impossible to do. So we did a, qu- a quick recorded piece uh, where we, uh, where he uh, spoke to us about a half an hour ago just outlining what is going to be happening at the former Lake Hotel in Inchgila. Yeah, look, I mean, the hotel has been used for the last several months uh, or more uh, as a... Uh, accommodation centre for uh, Ukrainian refugees and for uh, a number of reasons, including uh, families expressing a wish to relocate from Inchigila, um, the fact that there is nationally a surplus of accommodation for Ukrainians uh, and the fact that the, the local hotel changed its business model as uh, Ukrainians are now being relocated and being replaced by other families, couples with children, school-going children and younger children, uh, in the Lake Hotel as of from next week. So, I mean, I think the fear was, and I understand that fear locally, that it might be in a very small village, you know, young men, 30 or 35 young men, that's not going to happen. What's going to happen is families will be coming to the Lake Hotel to replace the Ukrainian population that have been there for the last several months. This is an effort by the state to uh, maximise and uh, use the accommodation that they have for that purpose in the most effective and efficient way possible. So, as I said, that's driven by the fact that there is, in fact, a surplus of accommodation available on the Ukrainian side and maybe a deficit of, of, of accommodation on the international protection side. And it is, and also Michael also wants to point out that the fact that it is families that are coming, people will see adult males, but they're all part of the family group. Parents and, and, and school-going children is what I understand. And, I mean, there have been uh, Ukrainian children in the schools in Inchigila and they've settled in very well. And I, I do understand the disruption that that is for the school and for those children. But there will be other children coming into the schools locally. I, I suspect probably both primary and secondary. OK, and that's happening from uh, next uh, week. And uh, the fact that the Ukrainians are moving out, so it's other families from other countries moving in instead. And uh, Michael uh, says that the numbers involved uh, will be appropriate for the village of Inchigila size, because I know that's often an issue when... Uh, asylum seekers or refugees move into an area people talk about will the services be there will there be enough spaces in the schools but he says uh, he says the numbers are appropriate for a village the size of Inchigila but just to put people's minds at ease because unfortunately you get the rumour machine takes off whenever 
a location is identified to house particularly international protection applicants who predominantly are men and people get worried about 35 young men who have nothing to do all day and they'll just be hanging around uh, the village so just to point that out it is families that are going to Inchigila 0818 103 103 and just on a, a completely different uh, topic. Mary's been on to us. She uh, has a question to do with uh, second-hand shops, charity uh, shops in town. She said, I visit uh, many of them, but she said there's never in- any information as to where the money that is raised from these charity shops, what is the money used for? She said, I could easily spend over €50 Euro in any of these shops. Where is the money spent within that organisation, says Mary? Well, it, it, it depends very much on the charity shop. You call them second-hand shops. You're talking about charity shops. It depends on the charity shops that you were going to. I mean, there's many, many uh, charity shops all over the country. The Societies of Vincent de Paul, they rely very heavily on funds that's raised from their uh, charity shops. And I know another one is the Irish Cancer uh, Society. They've over 20 charity shops now based all over the country and there's a number of them uh, here in Cork. And I know for the Irish Cancer Society, and we'll be talking with them shortly on the programme because we're coming up to uh, Daffodil Day and they always point out that they only get 5% of their funding from the government. So the rest of the money for the Irish Cancer Society has to come from donations. It has to come from fundraising like the Daffodil Day. But it also comes from the money that they raise through their charity shop. So it's uh, it's uh, Mary, what I would suggest to you if you're wondering where the money goes, it, it, it depends on what charity shop you're shopping in. Um, but feel free to ask them. They'll be at pains to point out where the money is uh, spent with all of those uh, charity shops. Many charities in this country could not survive without those charity shops and I'm even thinking, I know you're in Mallow Mary but in uh, Harris Jock in Dunmanway that's a wonderful charity shop and what they do, they they the money they make, they give it to a variety of different charities in the area, which I think is a lovely, lovely concept. I don't know if there's many other charity shops like that. Most of the charity shops that you will see around uh, the country are from some of the larger organisations who need to try to make as much money as they can. 0818 uh, John, when Michael Moynihan was on, a question came in asking, would I ask Michael Moynan about the delay with the Acres uh, farm payments? We are going to be discussing that in a couple of minutes. I have the uh, the IC, um, the ICSA are coming on. The Farmers Organisation are going to join us just to explain. This has been an ongoing issue. I think since I think I, we first started talking about it around the beginning of um, December and now we are halfway through from all, halfway through February and it seems there are still farm families waiting on their payments. So we are going to be talking about that on the programme today. Uh, Still getting in some comments on RTE. People still very annoyed. A lot of people are saying that RTE need to reveal what Rory Coveney uh, got in order to be open and transparent. I did mention that when Kevin Backers was pushed on that yesterday. He cited legal reasons and said they weren't able, he wasn't able to give out my Rory Coveney's exit package or some other exit package and he said he's citing legal uh, reasons. Hi Patricia, this is from another John saying the only way RTE will put this to bed, I think, is to close up shop, make people accountable and all of the money's returned. It's taxpayers' money at the end of the day. Wasn't it a very cosy way to cream off the top for the fat cats? To me, it sounds, the more we hear about RTE, it's rotten to the core. I bet this carry-on was going on within RTE for years. Close the doors. 
where did we hear all this carry on before? The good old Paddy, it's what we seem to be good at, says John. But if you close down RTE, John, what do you replace it? We need public service broadcasting. I wonder what you would be suggesting that we replace it with. And Patty Nimerick said uh, he's been thinking about the €450,000 that we found out yesterday that was paid to Abreed O'Keefe, the former Chief Financial Officer. Pat says, is this not in fact nearer to 900000 paid in that RTE have to pay taxes, etc. on the same shocking carry-on for a job that was still there when she left. She wasn't made uh, redundant. And God only knows what Rory Coveney got after resigning, says Pat, in uh, Limerick. Well, it, I don't know if it will come out at 900000 or not. All we know is that RTE are now acknowledging that Breda O'Keefe should not have received a redundancy package because it wasn't a redundancy. She resigned her position. I don't know why, but uh, she decided to leave RTE, you know, her own reasons for wanting to leave RTE, but she resigned. So when you resign, you don't get a redundancy package and you can only be paid a redundancy package package when the job, uh, the post is extinguished and nobody else goes into that position. And that, of course, was not the case. Breda O'Keefe walked out the door and the new chief financial officer would have walked in. I'm assuming there would have been a period of time where they both would have been working together. That's how normally with you know, positions like that of financial uh, officers they'd be working beside each other and then the, you know, the time for the, for the person who's resigning or retiring uh, leaves. So it wasn't a redundancy packet and RTE have acknowledged that they were wrong to class uh, Breda O'Keefe's exit package as a redundancy. They've had to contact the broadcaster. Uh, they've, the broadcaster has had to uh, report it to Revenue, which they've done, and they're now waiting for Revenue to come back to tell them how much they owe on that what isn't a redundancy package for Breathe O'Keefe and it has been confirmed that the tax bill will have to be paid by RTE. It will not have to be paid by Breathe O'Keefe. Now, we'll be in a very different scenario if, as a number of people are saying, including the Thornish this morning, Micheál Martin, that Breathe O'Keefe's package should be reassessed and that if she's paid anything above what she's entitled to, then it should be handed back. So if she's not entitled to any of it and the whole 450 gets handed back, well, then obviously there won't be a tax implication. 0818 103 103. John Paul taking your call. C103 Jobs. Construction worker wanted for groundworks. That's in the Clonakilty area. Email tim at hamiltonfrench.com. Full-time bar person is required for the Hibernian Hotel in Mallow. Now, previous experience is necessary. CVs, please, for the attention of Kieran at to info at hibernianhotel.com. Tractor driver wanted full or part-time position available in North Cork area 87 and Carrick Navarre Senior Citizens Group. They're looking for a part-time chef. It's for their weekly lunch club on Thursdays and Fridays. And you'll be required to work 16 hours per week. CVs, please, to Carrick Navarre SC 
at uh, gmail.com. You'll find all of the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With McCarthy Insurance Group, proud sponsors of the Cork GAA Club Football Leagues and Championships. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. Since before last Christmas, we've been hearing from Cork farmers who are still waiting for payments from the Department of Agriculture. And only this week we heard from some who feel they're under intense financial pressure to pay bills. To find out what's going on, I'm joined by Sean McNamara, who is the ICSA uh, president. Good morning to you, Sean. Good morning. Uh, You're welcome to the programme. Now, I suppose we need to go back to early December of last year when the Department of Agriculture said the acres payment would be delayed. What reasons did they give at that point in time? Well, the reason we're hearing it's an ITU issue uh, that there's an awful lot of work to be done to get sorted. Uh, we don't believe it, but uh, the minister told us our AGM and at loan uh, that they were working day and night to get sorted. And uh, the information I got, we look for an interim payment, the same as what's going out now. Um, last December, uh, we looked for the same and we pointed them and they told us it couldn't be paid, that it was... It couldn't be done, and I was a new director that couldn't be done, and that was it. But now, when the pressure came on him, like it was serious pressure put him at our AGM, like I put serious pressure on him. I said, well, what I know, and that was it. I wanted to take no for an answer. And that's the reason we have got out this much. We're still not happy, because it's still only a percentage of what the people are getting. Like, it's only working around... uh, between 30 and 50% of what the people should be getting. Yeah, so it's only a percentage of what, of what farmers are, are owned. And when that announcement was made in early December, at that point in time, when were farmers expecting, before the announcement was made, when were the payments due to be made? Yeah, the payments uh, were due to be made in December, first okay. of all, right? That was the first thing. Then decided in December uh, they couldn't be paid till they said by the 1st of February to the middle of February it would be paid. Be, all issues would be solved and it would be paid. But it's, it's, the issues are still not solved and we're, we're nearly three months on further and the issues are still not solved. So all I'm worried about is alright we're getting the the advance payment now an interim payment whenever it comes out. Probably The same now would be 1st of March um, and all I'm worried about is when is the balance going to come to farmers. That's the biggest problem. When will the farmers get balanced? Like the way I look at farmers who are getting full payment at this stage, it's totally ridiculous what's going on at the moment. Like like no other sector of society would, would put up with that, only farmers. How many farmers, Sean, are we talking about that's affected by these delays? Uh, around um, uh, 15,800. It's a lot of farmers. It's a lot of farmers with the money. Like, and most of them farmers are suckler farmers and, you know, low, low, we say low income farmers. That's what I'd be saying. And they're dependent on this to pay their bills. And, you know, it's at this time of the year with the price of imports and everything. Farmers are serious trouble. And, like, it's caused a lot of stress, a lot of mental well being of farmers. Like, it's not on, and that's why I look at it. Like, and, like, I'm still not finished. Like, I'm going to get him again to get the rest of the balance paid out right away. Like, as soon as I meet him again, that's what I'm going to do. Like, me and ICC, we're going to, to look to get the balance paid out and that's it. Like, yeah, we're, not going to put up with this. we're not going to put up with this for another year. Like, it's not going to happen. That's simple as that. Like, we can talk about the farmer's charter rights. 
But as far as I can see, it's charter rights for everyone else, only the farmer. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, and as you mentioned, I mean, these payments cover the, the bills, they repay the loans, etc. Have you heard, Sean, from many farmers who have really struggled I've heard from a lot of farmers who are struggling at the moment. Like, there's a lot of farmers out there, and they don't know which in the turn. Like, they have children in college, and they have several different bills to pay. Like, and and like, in fairness, like a lot of us, a lot of farmers, only for their wife is working and bringing in a second income, or maybe doing a part-time job themselves and bringing in a second income. It would be a serious bother. But then there's men out there that's worse. So that's full-time farmers, and depending on this. And like it's there now with bad credit ratings to banks and everything. Like you know yourself, you depend on a payment and you say you're gonna get four or five thousand in December and you tell the bank, Oh, I'm gonna pay me all in December, I get the five thousand and they still doesn't come when you're two months on further. Like it lives with serious bad credit ratings. And yeah. like it's not the farmer's fault, but it's 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 all Yeah, and, uh, and if on. it's if it's paying back loans, there could be implications with interest, late payment um charges. So could it ultimately yeah, cost well, the farmers? That's right. With interest, it's not low interest. Like if you don't, um, if you get bad credit rating, like yeah, which a lot of farmers it will get over this. Yeah, yeah, it stays with Like you. you go to look for a loan again, you won't get. That's just it. Like you know, that that's it. You're finished. So you you want some kind of commitment, Sean, that this will never happen again. Well, I want a commitment, but I'm going to see what I say. I'm going to make sure it's never going to happen again. Like, I'm not going to put up with this. Like, it, it's going on too long. Like, like no other sector of society, like I said, will put up with this. Like, we say, we're not saying anything, but if the double payments wasn't paid on social welfare and they only go pay, pay a percentage of people, there'd be an all out war. The country, yeah. like, farmers mm-hmm. are quiet. Like, you know what I mean? There'd be war. And, and like, it's it's that fair, like that's the way I look at it. Like, what yeah, well, I, I I remember hearing from one farm family before Christmas when it was announced. Uh, you know, they were expecting this money to arrive in time for Christmas, saying they were going to have a very lean Christmas, and and they had children. That's, you know what I mean? And they were banking on this money. Uh, you know, not just to pay bills, but to cover Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's you see, that's the problem with farming at the moment. Like we're expected to to uh, to to produce food for under the cost of production um, and everything. And there's no farmer making a viable income out of farming. That, that's the biggest problem. Like, there's no farmer making a viable income out of farming. Most farmers are getting older. Like, like our age, the average age of farmers now is 61 years of age. No young farmer wants to do it. And you can't blame them because there's nothing out there for them to do it. So, like, I think we're going to, the biggest problem I can see in the next couple of years is we're going to lose a generation of farmers. And then, yeah, who will be who will be producing food? People have really don't. People really need to stop and consider the seriousness of that. If we lose our far, our farmers, that's right. Like food security is going to like I was on buses the last two days back today, but like food security is a serious issue out there, and like at the moment, and like like we can't like we're like we're all the time 
farmers are expecting price takers, right? Come on, we sell the price there for us, we have to take it that day. But like everything we buy, all the inputs we bring in, meal, fertilizer, or whatever you want to do, repair machinery, we have to pay the full whack for it. Like everyone has everyone has got profit out of it. But as far as we can see, we can make no profit over where are anymore. Like it's gone. Like our cap payments is dwindling to nearly nothing. Like they want to be at the moment we're getting about one point five, one point six billion hour buses and the cap payment. And to keep up with inflation and compared to nineteen ninety one, we want to get three point one four six or 164 billion to keep up with inflation to, to, to match it. And that's just to keep up with in inflation because somebody's yeah. saying, Joe is saying the payments under the acres scheme uh, fall well short of what farmers were getting during reps three and four. The payments need to be doubled. Uh, it's time that the farming organisation deliver for the farming community. Do you, do you, you're accepting that, that the rep payments, it falls far short than, or acres falls short than what reps did. Oh, definitely. Like, it was no bother, like we say in the 90s there with the reps getting 10,000 pounds, or I tell you, it was pounds at the time, 10,000 pounds. And now we're getting this little mini Kuryoko of uh, an acre scheme, and most farmers, five, six thousand, that's about it. Ha! Less than half the money, like, and expect, and expected to do more. You know what I mean? I know we to do things with reps. But it still was a simpler scheme. Now we have to pay planners. It's all costing money. Like, like you might get four or five thousand, but you're going to give your planner back a thousand. So you're backed into square one. So you're backed at three thousand or four thousand. That's about the top of it. And yet the, the Department of Agriculture describe it as the government's flagship environmental programme. They're very proud of the acres scheme. Yeah, well, I wouldn't be proud of it now. I'd be straight about like I'd I'd like to see it at least double. I'd like to see it. There's no point today. I'd like to see it triple what it is. But like it's not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be proud of it. I mean, I guarantee you that. Like no way. Okay. I okay. like the way but they're after messing farmers up and messing farmers around now. With like it, it's serious. You know what I mean? But for those farmers who, as I say, are contacting us on a weekly basis, saying we're still waiting on our acres payment, you're saying there's an interim payment on the way should be here by the end of the month, the beginning of March. But you still have no date on when people will get their full payment. No, definitely not. And that's the thing we have to find out when people are going to get a full payment. Like, like I'm going to the stage now, I don't believe anything to say anymore because, like, the toll is to be out in December, the toll is to be out to begin in February, now the toll is out to begin in March. Like, I just have to wait and see, will it come out? Okay. You know what I mean? Okay. They're given dates, but it's it's... Like, it isn't common to dim dates, that's as far as I can think. Yeah, those, like, those it, dates it, seem to be a bit of a movable uh, feast. Um, just while I have you on the line, uh, Sean, because uh, just on a different topic, I saw this week that you issued a plea to the public to remain vigilant and responsible for their dogs to prevent attacks on sheep. There was a devastating attack, wasn't there, last week in, in County Wexford? I think it was one of your members. Yeah, that's right. He's one of our own members of ICC, Des Green. And like they attacked two neighbouring farmers and they killed, I don't mind to kill the dead, but killed seven or eight and they killed seven or eight and a neighbouring farmer. And the two dogs come three kilometres away. And he said to me, they were well fed dogs. Like they weren't dogs that wasn't looked after, well fed, well looked after, and everything. But they can imagine three kilometres to kill sheep. So I'd be warning people just like, even though you have no sheep beside you, and you might think, oh, my dog won't. It won't kill sheep like the sheep is too far away maybe two or three miles away or four miles like that doesn't say they won't kill like they will go and that's it I'd be warning people to give them dogs I know most people are very good owners of dogs and they look after the dogs but there's a certain element out there that doesn't care where the dogs go like to go to work during the morning 
they'll help the dog and that's it and he's sitting at the doorstep and maybe come back in the evening and the dog still sits at the doorstep but the dog could do a lot of damage to me they've done today that they wouldn't know about. Yeah, so you need to always make sure that your dog is secure and is a secure garden or is in in the house and is not yeah. at any stage allowed to roam. No, that's what I. That's what I be saying. At no stage allowed to roam. Like this is getting serious. Like every year and every week you're here. Min, like it even happened myself. Like Min getting sheep killed. Like it's serious and it's not alone. Like it's a stress farmer goes on after it. Like. Like we say, poor poor Dennis Green will say, for simple reason, he's a flock of yours, lambing. So what harm are they done to the rest of the yours? Like, he lose yours. I see the word sales. he lose lambs. he lose everything. Like, it's serious. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And no one cares. And then if he's an inspection or anything, then he's to blame. I see him myself. Dogs killed sheep of me. And uh, the department come over and see the dead sheep in the field. And uh, they blame me. Because you want, in fact, they turn back was on, you want to report to me that I poisoned the dogs, which I didn't, a neighbouring man poisoned them, and I got no more bother over than she did. So, like, like, there's no tolerance for farmers at all. Okay. All right, Sean, listen, thank you for that, and thanks for the update on the acres payment. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. You're quite welcome. I appreciate being on your show. Thank you very much. Good morning much. to you. Bye-bye. Sean McNamara there, ICSA uh, president with, uh, I can't say brilliant news for people waiting on the acres payment, but uh, some good news, interim payments on the way. And uh, we'll keep a close eye as to when the rest of uh, the payments are due to arrive. But the um, department are saying it's an IT uh, issue. And if it is an IT issue, it's been going on since last December. It's taking a long while uh, to sort out that IT issue for sure. And we're going to and Garda Station for this week's Garda File, where we're joined by Garda James Masters. Uh, good morning to you, James. Good morning, Patricia. How are you? I'm very well, and you're very good. welcome to the programme. Now, you. let's get straight into uh, topics of interest for today. Firstly, you're trying to find an owner of a money box. Yeah, that's correct, Patricia. Um, on the 7th of the 2nd, 2024, at 9, 10 p.m., there's a man out walking and he located a small blue uh, metal money box, Patricia. Um, it was actually located near the, the bandstand in Fomoy Town Park. The lock itself was um, interfered with and the box was actually empty. Um, I suppose we, we may think it could have been taken in a theft or a burglary. So I suppose, Gardy, you're asking if anyone is missing a blue box or anyone actually has a blue box to take a look to see if it's actually missing and if it is to contact Fomoy Gardy, Patricia. Okay, unfortunately, as you say, it was empty. It, it, say, yeah. d- just explain again where it was located. Uh, the bandstand in Fomoy. Okay, so it was dumped. Patricia. Yeah, it was dumped yeah. at the bandstand. Okay. Uh, if anybody's missing one of those metal blue money boxes uh, for Fomoy Gardy, uh, please, uh, please. Now, there was a theft of what you describe as a distinctive item in Kinsale. That's correct, uh, Patricia. Um, this item, actually, it's a handmade, no-parking sign. Uh, I'd say the people in Kinsale will be uh, well aware of it. Um, it was taken in Kinsale from outside the Tap Tavern at around 2 a.m. on the 27th of January um, 24. Um, I suppose the sign itself is about three feet um, high, Patricia, uh, very heavy, as the bottom part is metal filled with concrete. Um, as I said, it's quite distinctive. Now, I suppose Gardaí are aware that People may ha- not have witnesses that it was 2am, but I suppose we're just um, making appeal to see if anyone does a cross for sale or if it's on a website um, to, to contact Kinsale Gardaí if possible, Patricia. And the sign, including the base, the whole thing was taken? The whole thing, yeah. Oh. yeah. Now, we think, you know, um, 
would have taken two people to lift it, Patricia. Yeah. It's fairly heavy and it, it is very distinctive, you know. And if you did see it on the website or you saw it in a second-hand sale, you know, you would, um, after listening to today's show, you, you definitely would. Yeah, it would um, stand out. You might have it would. Okay, and obviously transport was needed. They, they couldn't have just walked off with it. it no, was yeah, exactly, okay. Patricia. So, so 2 a.m., somebody might have been out and about, um, they might have dashed camp footing or somebody might have noticed people hanging around. Uh, people in the area will know the sign we're talking about. Uh, any information to Kinsale, uh, Gardaí. Now, yesterday we were talking about Valentine's Day, the most romantic day of the year. And yeah. unfortunately, I did touch on it yesterday, James. Romance fraud is on the increase. Yes, Patricia. Um, I suppose for the, for just for the listeners that aren't aware of of it, Patricia, um, the victim of the scam um, believes they they have actually met their perfect match online. Um, in fact, it's another person, a scammer, using a fake profile to build a relationship. Um, they're slowly trying to gain the trust of the victim uh, with a view to asking them for money. Eventually, um, I suppose we've seen some cases where the suspect actually asked for a small amount of money and would actually uh, repay it. Um, quickly gaining the trust of the victim. Um, there was a case up the country recently where a lady was given expensive gifts, um, scarves and perfume over an over 13-month period where she was eventually asked to invest in a business and she actually lost uh, €48,000 there, Patricia. Wow. Uh, yes, so I, I suppose um, a number of other things there. Um, the victim might ask um, um, for money to... Um, for travelling um, to the victim, uh, emergency medical expenses for the scammer of a family member, and there's also, I suppose, some telephone sales. Patricia, the the fraudster might uh, move the communication from a, a dating website, uh, like let's say instant messaging or text messages or phone calls. Um, they might avoid personal questions, ask for financial help. And they never actually meet you, Patricia. Um, they always present with obstacles and they might even um, make arrangements and cancel last minute. So they're kind of telltale signs, Patricia. Um, yeah, because I know the dating apps yesterday because it can be, I mean, lots of people meet on dating yeah. websites. It's a kind of the modern way to meet people. Uh, and there's, you know, lots of are very legitimate, well-run dating uh, sites that these criminals are using in order to meet up with people. But I think that that real red flag is when they encourage you to move away from the dating site to go on to private messaging in, instead, you know, on, on Instagram or on WhatsApp, whatever yeah. it is. If if you want to communicate with somebody, keep the communication through the dating website. That's exactly it, and I suppose we've we've a few things to say in that. You know, you use your trusted dating websites, as you said, Patricia. Not um, not sharing personal information. Obviously, don't send money, and always try to trust your instinct. Um, I suppose it's important for the listeners to remember that this this is actually a fraud, uh, which is a criminal offence. Um, Gardaí still believe there is more people out there that are victims of this crime but they can be slow to come forward Patricia so, because they might feel a small bit embarrassed to report this um, we'd obviously encourage them to come to their local Gardaí station uh, we'll deal with it private and confidentially um, but if you are a victim of this crime we would definitely encourage you to come forward. Yeah, I'm always saying it. Please don't be embarrassed by it. These, yeah, these scam artists are professionals. That is their that is their full-time job. They'll spend a lot of time building up uh, your trust, so please be careful. Now, yeah. let's go to Kilworth, where there was a theft of a log splitter. 
Yes, again, another, um, I suppose it's just, um, this actually happened a couple of months ago. We're, we're asking people to keep your eyes out for it. Um, this happened between 3 p.m. on the 21st of the 10th, 2023, and 9 a.m. on the 22nd of the 10th, 2023. It's a Malone log splitter. Um, it was stolen from an isolated um, area, farmyard outside Greggett there in Kilworth County Cork um, so I suppose especially for the North Cork listeners uh, the type of log splitter uh, it, it actually fits in the rear of a tractor and it's high in value um, over six foot high and again very distinctive you know um, maybe again people mightn't have seen the initial theft but just to keep your eye out for it if it was being um, if it was up for sale on the website or a car boot sale or whatever the case may be to contact um, Mitchell's own guard station, Patricia. Fox. Yeah, because I was, I was reading, uh, it was the Gardaí in Dublin and in Galway. I, I, I think they were both working together and they managed to arrest a criminal gang who were travelling all over the country, robbing, you know, tools out of tradesmen's vans, etc. and going for items like this. And then they sell them on at various car boot sales on both sides of the border. So when, you know, there's nothing wrong with car boot sales and you can get great bargains of car boot sales but you really need to stop and think when you're buying something where is this being sourced from? Exactly Patricia and you know yourself if the if the if it's if it's too good to be true it sometimes is you know yeah. you could have some item that's worth 2,000 euro and it's it's going for sale for 300 euro the questions have to be asked there you know. Now an increase in people leaving their car doors open and I saw this online in it was shared in a number of community uh, posts in the Mallow area now this could happen anywhere but it seems to be happening a lot in the Mallow area of late tell us what's yeah, going on. Late, Patricia that's correct um, I know I mentioned this a number of weeks ago in relation to um, Kinsale and Belgooley and places near um, there in Balhassig. Um But unfortunately, um, we have had a number of incidents in, in Mallow uh, recently, I suppose, just to reaffirm it again. Um, people to make sure going to bed, lock their cars, no matter if they're living in the countryside or in a park or a town, um, always make sure and do it. And, I know we're all guilty of it, Patricia, but um, it's just extremely important. There is people going around there, unfortunately, checking cars and also keep the cars locked, keep um, keep the keys aw- uh, away from the site, away from the front door, aware from people that can put their hand in and grab them, Patricia. And um, I suppose just for North Cork listeners, again, I know it was reformed in, in Kinsale and stuff like that, but just to, um, to have the people out there just to... Um, to, to be aware of it. Okay, lock your doors at all times. Yeah. All right, James, listen, thank you for that. We'll talk to you again in the coming Lovely. weeks. Thanks, Thanks for Thanks joining so us. Bye bye. That is uh, Garda James Masters, who joins us from Bandon uh, Garda Station. 0818103103. I was speaking. Uh, about the uh, delays with the acres payment for uh, farmers and uh, they've been delayed uh, since they were due them in December uh, promised them at the start of February we're nearly into the middle of February now it looks like it's going to be at least the end of this month if not the beginning of next month before only a percentage of the payments is going to be paid that has prompted somebody to say some things never change uh, farmers always with the poor mouth in fairness you couldn't help but have uh, sympathy for the farmers on this one if I mean you think about it yourself if you are expecting a payment on a certain date and then it doesn't arrive and then there's delay after delay after delay bills still have to be paid uh, and there's a lot of farmers are in this acres scheme I think about 46,000 uh, participated in, in total and nearly 17,000 are still without payment payment that they were due 
last uh, December. So, you know, I think it's a bit unfair uh, to say that they're always crying the poor mouth. That was by text. Some of your thoughts coming in. Terence in Carrigaline, listening to us discussing the farmers issue and the delay with payments to farmers. Terence says, why should farmers have a sense of entitlement? If they cannot make money, then tell them to either sell land or diversify. If I decide I can't make money, I either have to shut up shop or do something else. I know farmers in Kerry, for example, who solely deal in uh, sheep, but they also work as builders, etc. If we were not part of the EU, farmers would get nothing. Yeah, but the, the whole point of it is if we were solely paying farmers the amount it costs them to produce either, you know, meat, veg, whatever it is they're producing, we wouldn't be able to afford to pay for the food. All of the food is uh, uh, is supplemented. The the costs are supplemented by the likes of the EU. We'd all be living in food poverty because we would not be able to, if farmers were to charge exactly what it costs them to produce, then you or I, Terence, wouldn't be able to afford the food we will be buying in our shops. And that's just, the, that's the way it goes and it's the way it is at world wide we have to support our farmers otherwise you know where will we go for food if we lose all our farmers and we already have an issue as was identified this morning the farmers are getting older and older because young people don't want to go into it because there isn't the money to be made 0818 103 103 I mentioned Rose from the wonderful Taris Jock charity shop in Dunmanway when somebody was asking where does the money go that uh, people you know if you go into a charity shop and buy items Rose was heard us mention her this morning and she wants to thank the local community for supporting the great work that goes on in uh, Thyris Jock. They give back to various charities across the community and she said exactly as I pointed out other charity shops such as the Cancer Society or the Society of Vincent de Paul they give to that one specific charity whereas with Thyris Jock they spread the money around. She wasn't able to join us on air but she said she would love to come on someday and talk to us about what the work that goes on behind the scenes at a charity shop which would be a nice chat to have with Rose. Thank you for that. Pat in Limerick then was listening to my piece with Deputy Michael Creed who was outlining changes that are going to happen at the hotel in the former hotel in Inchigila, the Lake Hotel in Inchigila. It has been housing Ukrainians but the Ukrainians are moving out and instead a families, families who are here seeking international protection are going to move in uh, instead and they're all going to be families with school going children could be primary school children secondary school uh, children. Pat and Nimick said did I miss here what Deputy Michael Michael Creed said that there's a surplus of accommodation for Ukrainians and our own people can't get accommodation and 13,000 are homeless and a lot of them are children. It's scandalous. The government should be ashamed of themselves as passing from oil. Well, he, yeah, he did say that there is a surplus for uh, Ukrainians to house Ukrainians but it, it, there certainly isn't a surplus when it comes to housing people looking for international protection and of course if you look at we currently have a situation in Dublin. If you've been in Dublin lately, you'll notice there's a lot of tents on the street. There are a lot of uh, male asylum seekers when they arrive into this country because we don't have the accommodation for them and they are ending up sleeping rough. They're in all these tents in Dublin. But in the last number of weeks a couple of months maybe, they uh, the government have been running out of and in particular the Department of Integration who need to find the housing for those coming here seeking international protection. They're running out of accommodation for families and children and parents with children that are arriving. That's why there's a big push uh, in order to try and get accommodation for families uh, rather than 
single adults and single adults are really just being left to say sorry there is no room at the inn you're going to have to they give them a tent and a sleeping bag so hence the reason with the Ukrainians for a variety of reasons deciding to relocate from Inchigila there's 35 beds now available and they are going to now be made available for newly arrived international protection applicants from the 20th of uh, February but Michael Creed has a guarantee from the Department of Integration and from the Minister Rodrigo Gorman that all the residents will be families with school uh, going uh, children. And I also heard yesterday that the former B&B in Formoy, Abbeville, and I know there's been ongoing protests outside uh, Abbeville, Abbeville, when that was designated that uh, 56 males would be housed there seeking international protection. Well, there's been a change on that now as well. And instead of males being provided with temporary accommodation, it's now going to be used to provide temporary accommodation for families and children. That's according to the Department of Integration, because they say they are running out of space uh, when a family and anyone with a child arrives seeking international protection. Obviously, priority must be given to uh, to children and uh, to women. Uh, so they're really looking at every available bed space that they can use. So single men, single adult men who come here looking for asylum are being put way to the bottom of the pile. Hence the reason that so many of them are sleeping rough. And I know certainly in the Dublin area, many of them are using the rough sleeping, you know, the accommodation that's there for rough sleepers. Many of the uh, asylum seekers are being offered those beds at night, but there isn't enough of those beds. So many of them are on tents on the street. 0818 Still getting in calls about... RTE, which is now, I think, really gaining momentum, particularly when we're hearing about the Thornish that Michal Martin was asked about it today. And he's throwing his tuppence halfpenny worth in, saying that Breedo O'Keefe and a 450,000 euro exit package, he says it needs to be reassessed. And if there's any overpayment, it needs to be paid back. Dan says, is it not ridiculous that the revenue commissioners, which hypothetically is you and me, uh, may now tax RTE on that €450,000 exit package, which at the end of the day will be us paying the money. On the payments given to all of the RTE executives, it is us, the taxpayers, who pay it. Um, It is all wrong. What a load of bull. The Minister should sort all this out and sort it out at no extra cost. RTE shouldn't be forced to pay revenue any money, any tax outstanding on that €450,000. I see the point you're making, Dan. Yeah, ultimately it is the taxpayer and uh, those those of us who pay our TV licence. That's where the money will be coming from. It'll be interesting to see, will there be a dip in the TV licence again? And they were delighted with themselves that during the month of January, there was a slight increase. It was the first increase in people paying and renewing their TV licence since last June. But I think after yesterday, it was the first thing that went through my head as I was watching it. Anyone about to go into uh, a post office to pay a TV licence, I think will stop and uh, think. Hi, Patricia, we actually don't need a public service broadcaster I feel that RTE are not there for the public. They only seem to be broadcasting. They're the government's broadcasting channel. I used to look at it all the time, but not anymore. They're like Pinocchio. Their noses just seem to get longer every time one of them open their mouth. We have TV3, which is now called Virgin Media, which is absolutely wonderful, says this uh, texter, and they will stick with uh, Virgin Media. And John says, Patricia, the €450,000 paid to the former former Chief Financial Officer uh, Breda O'Keefe is staggering. Also, Rory Coveney was given an exit package when he resigned over the toy show, the musical debacle. We don't know how much this 
was. But since when does the person who resigned, when did they get an exit package? The licence fee will now collapse Nobody will be paying it, says uh, John. So there's John answering the question that I was just uh, thinking of. Yeah, it seems, I have to say, it does seem crazy that uh, somebody decides to exit. And particularly if somebody is exiting over something like the toy show musical, The Tobacco, somebody is leaving a company because something they were responsible for costs the company a lot of money. I don't know any other company in the world would give that person a pat on the back and give them a golden handshake. It certainly does need to be looked into. 0818103103. And I saw this has just been released in the last hour. It's the Central Statistics Office and the annual rate of inflation. Anytime we hear the annual rate of inflation going down, we celebrate it. It's down again 4.1% in the 12 months to the end of January. In December, we mentioned it, it was at 4.6%. So that now means for the third consecutive month we have had the cost of inflation lower than 5% and it's just hovering over 4% now which is certainly good good news. Um, uh, Today's figures show uh, the most significant price growth in the 12 months to January. Uh, The most significant increases because obviously the inflation has taken over a wide variety of different goods and services so overall it is down or it has gone up in some areas. Recreation and culture Uh, prices are up there by 9.3%. Restaurants and hotels prices there have gone up by uh, 7.2%. There was also a big jump in the cost of your annual package holidays. A lot of people book holidays in January. They're up staggering. They're up uh, four. 41.8% is the cost of a package holiday. Actually, I had to book a flight uh, lately. I'm going away for a weekend to my niece's uh, hen party in... um, Edinburgh and then I was booking some uh, flights for us to go away in for Easter. I couldn't get over how much the flights were but you know what was really annoying? The flight out is always a reasonable reasonable price but it's the flight back they always seem to catch you on and it's just, the mind boggles how the flight out can be one price and the flight back. There was one, one of the particular flights that I booked the flight out and the flight back. It was five times dearer to come back and it's like a captive audience. If you fly out they know you have to come back but they seem to always put the price up on the flight back. That completely annoys me. But if you're about to book a package holiday, you can expect there is a big, big uh, increase in the cost of it. Clothing and footwear, that was one division that did go down. Prices were down year on year, 1.3%. Uh, and then they always, the CSO always published um, the, nat- the national average prices for some of the stable items. Now, these are the national... Na- the national average price is not to say that your local shop is going to be selling these items at this price and they look at things like um, bread and uh, milk and you know all of the stables so taking a look year on year a white slice pan that has gone down by 3 cent to 164 a 2.5 kg bag of potatoes down 38 cent that's a 378 that's average because I know somebody said they paid a huge amount for a bag of potatoes last uh, week a block of cheddar cheese is at the same price 
the spaghetti has gone up. I don't know why spaghetti has gone up. It's gone up 12 cent for a packet of spaghetti to €1.44. There's been a decrease in the price of full fat milk year on year. Two litre drum down 8 cent. It's currently at 2.18. And there has been a decrease also in uh, a pound of butter. It's gone down 7 cent. It's at €3.76. It's still butter. It's still butter and cheese is still uh, very, very expensive. So there's uh, some of the staples remaining the same and some of them have actually gone down. I notice tea isn't on that and the reason I mention uh, tea if like me you love your daily uh, cuppa and you might like to dunk a chocolate biscuit into it be warned there could be shortages of both or there could be increases in the price of both and this is to do with everything that's going on the political tensions that are going on in the Middle East. We know there's been disruption in shipping in the Red Sea and that has resulted in supply issues among several tea uh, companies and it's also having a knock-on effect on the price of chocolate. The Red Sea, of course, there's been violence in recent weeks and this is the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels. They've been attacking commercial vessels and the Red Sea is important because it's the world's busiest shipping uh, lanes and of course the attacks are happening in response to the Israeli assault on uh, Gaza. So because of that, commercial companies have to make a decision rather than go through the Red Sea, which is the shortage shortage shortest route. They have to redirect all of their cargo ships and they have to go round the Cape of Good Hope instead and obviously there's a cost implication on that. So one tea producer in Belfast uh, said they are starting to see genuine problems over supply and uh, demand. It's uh, uh, Ross Thompson of Thompson's Tea. Now they produce Punjana tea, if you're a drinker of Punjana uh, tea. He was speaking on the BBC and they say they source some of their tea in their blend from uh, Kenya and they buy it at the biggest tea auction which happens in Mombasa every Monday and Tuesday and then they ship, ship it to Belfast and he said their container shipping company can't take the risk with the crew to travel up the Red Sea so it has to go the wrong way around the Cape of Good, Ho- Good, Ho- Good Hope he said it's a very long journey Delays are happening. Now, he said it's not causing huge problems at the moment, but he said the supply line is extremely tight. And he said for the first time, they actually ran out of teas to blend on one day this week, and that hasn't happened before. And then from tea over to chocolate, Cadbury's and Hersey, the two big chocolate makers, they're planning price hikes. And this is to cover what they say are record-setting surges in cocoa prices that goes on to make our lovely chocolate. The chocolate makers have said they, they They've been left with no alternatives but to push up the price and that is to do with lack of supplies and um, that is also to do with the shipping issues and what's going on in the Red Sea. Now, so far in here in Ireland, we're not seeing a major shortage of tea supplies and that's got to do with some of the larger chain um, suppliers, uh, things like uh, Tesco. They still have good supplies and they say they're having minimum disruption at the moment. However, retailers across the board have been highlighting how they've been been impacted by supply issues because of what is going on in the Middle East. Uh, on the beginning of this month, Adidas came out and said they're, um, they're, they're, they described it as exploding freight rates 
that obviously was going to drive up the cost of all of Adidas uh, goods. They're also seeing shipping uh, delays, which is causing delivery issues. And Marks and Spencers have also come out and saying that they're expecting some delays and that could be on clothing and home deliveries. And it's all down to the shipping. But there would be a major, major panic if we ran out of our tea. I think we would survive without the chalky biscuit, but I certainly wouldn't survive without the tea. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, making Cork County the place to live, work, visit and invest in. See corkcoco.ie. A table quiz in aid of Mallow Senior Footballers is going to be held tonight at 8 o'clock in Maureen's Bar on O'Brien Street. Everyone's welcome. Tables of four, please. 40 euro. At Newmarket Horse Show, that's on today. While Kildallery Community Development, they've got their weekly lotto draw four o'clock this afternoon in the local community office with a jackpot of €12,400. Balancholic Alzheimer Cafe is on today between four and six this afternoon in the Chapel Gate Cafe. This month's topic is supports available for hearing well. If you have any queries, 021-497-2504. A fundraising poker classic in aid of the Sensory Garden for Chandron National School will be held tomorrow Friday. It's in Ned's Bar in Newtown and they've got a nine o'clock start. And Tully Lee's Grammar, Drama Group are presenting Two Loves of Gabriel Foley, a three-act comedy, and that is tomorrow night. Court Today on C103. With McCarthy Insurance Group, proud sponsors of the Cork GAA Club Football Leagues and Championships. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie And just on farming and the farming issue and the acres payment, uh, John P says, Patricia, whatever about the Department of Agriculture saying it's an IT issue, the reason why we're not getting our acres payment. Do you realise we had to pay Chagas last May for plans for acres? We need a minister that will deliver. And that is from John P. And then another texter says, Hi Patricia, listening to your show this morning and the fact that the farmers didn't get paid their fees under the acres scheme, particularly fees that they were due. Well, the government recently paid €808,000 to bring pets from Ukraine for the Ukrainians here. How ridiculous is that? Deputy Michael McNamara asked the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar about it in the Dáil. This money was paid by the Department of Agriculture. Should that money not have gone to the farmers instead? It's all bonkers. I saw that piece on Dáil TV or maybe it was on the news I saw it and when Leo Varadkar was asked about it he said he knew nothing about it. I must do a deep dive and try and get some confirmation on it. It does seem like a lot of money to be paid and I know a lot of the Ukrainian refugees I mean if you think about it if you're leaving your country because there's war going on and you have a much loved pet many people have arrived with uh, pets but it seemed like a huge sum of money to pay I thought people just travelled with the pet in arms but it seems like there was must have been shipping costs or something but €808,000 did seem like a lot of money. I need to look into that in more detail and if it has come from the Department of Agriculture it certainly will be galling to the farmers and to thank you to uh, somebody who enjoys the show but says I say ah and am too many times. Listen I have a sign in front of me that says am to try and get me to stop when I'm speaking. Sometimes I I get into the flow of what I'm saying and I keep stopping and I'll say ah 
instead. So my apologies. I do try and work on it, I promise you. Now, Skull Eglatine in Ballinlock yesterday held what they call their annual School Avision Song Contest. So play on words with Eurovision. And it features all original songs written by the students. It is the 18th year of the school's own take on the Eurovision and they call, they call it School Avision. So our reporter, Stephen Fox, went along to find out more about what is a very unique project in Ballinlock. My name is Jo O'Brien. I'm principal here at Eglantine National School. And School of Vision is an annual event here organised by teacher Rosie O'Shea. It's in its 19th year. It involves the children creating, writing, composing and performing their own unique songs. The school with a rich history and culture of music and performance. We have very talented staff, very invested staff as well in nurturing the children's talents wherever they may lie, be it songs, performing, drama or in other areas as well. And we've just raised our kindness flag, actually a flag that was awarded to us by the department recently. And I think it embodies what the school is about, kindness and well-being and nurturing the confidence of the girls and encouraging them to nurture each other as well and their friendships. I'm Ellie. And I'm Maria. And I'm Carla. And what group are you with? The best group. The coolest one. Shining but rhyming. We kind of just made up a rap and rhymed it. Like, day goes really wrong. So, yeah. An awful day. An awful day. What makes it awful? There's no pie. There's pies. The the pie's just too sweet. And the train's a wreck. And the cows go and you hurt your toe. And everything went wrong. Did they go right? Yeah. Yeah. They were good. Of course, this entire event would not happen without the teacher spearheading the whole day, Rosie O'Shea. They put the songs in before Christmas and then a few of us meet up with somebody from the School of Music. It's good to have an outside adjudicator. There's 32 entries this year. It's actually very hard to get it down to 12 and try and represent all the classes. It was busy. And then when they come in after Christmas and we start rehearsing, it takes time. (laughs) They practice at lunch. And what was the writing process like? Was there a lot of input from teachers and helpers? No, they do it completely themselves in their own time and it's their choice if they want to enter or not. And they meet up at the weekends and... Some met up and they were singing outside in the yard. Totally up to them for their choice, so it wasn't, that's always the best. My name is Claire. I sang my song Just Notice. I love School of Vision. I did it last year and when I was in Kerry I decided I wanted to write a song for School of Vision. So I just looked out the window and there was loads of nature around and I was by the sea and stuff so it was where I got the inspiration. Today went very good. I really enjoyed it. Case. 
I'm Elsie. What group are you part of? The Kill Cucumbers. And where did your song come about? I was at her house and then we got like really bored and we just decided to do a song about World Drain Ireland. We made it up in 20 minutes. Yeah, really Amazing. good. Really fun. Chillax. Well, not chillax, but like, yeah, it was really fun and I really enjoyed it. It was really fun. I really enjoyed it. It was, yeah. but my voice is nearly gone now. So. <laughs> yeah, for lots of people. I'm Chloe Carley. I'm Anna Ryan. I'm Ella Murphy. I'm Sophia Considine. I'm Ava Griffin. Yes. yes. Well, we decided to enter the yearly school song competition because we thought it'd be great fun to hang out. And we wrote it together in the classroom over there because my mum's a teacher here. What's it about? It's about shopping with your friends and going into Pennies and Round Thomas. Having a good time, basically. Yeah. It went really well, I think. We did two performances and I think they both went well. I can't emphasise enough how much a team everybody is here and I don't just mean that on the staff, between the staff and the pupils, it's a, between the school and the parent body, there's a great sense of community. We like to come to work and enjoy ourselves and we like for the children to be in an environment of fun as well. And how does it stack up to other years? Last year was our first school vision in a number of years because of the pandemic. It's getting better and better I think every year and next year will be the 20th anniversary so we've high hopes now for next year Miss O'Shea. Well done. I think there's some future songwriters in that bunch. That's Skull Eglatine in Ballinlock. Congratulations to all of the pupils on their school vision. 0818103103. If you have a question, question for Jane, get it into us, uh, please. John Paul's taking the call so you could text her WhatsApp. Uh, so she says, Patricia, you don't need to apologise for the ums and the ahs. Sure, the rest of us understand you're banned from saying F words or B words or any other swear words, so we fully understand. I don't think I um and ah because I'm about to say a swear word. But you never know. Thank you for your text to 0862 103 103. And I love this one when I was talking about what could be a shortage of tea and chocolate. And I said I would survive without the chocolate, but I wouldn't survive without the tea. So John McNamara says, Madam, you might do without your chocolate biscuit, but we all like to dunk ours. John, no relation to our own John Paul, by the way. Thank you for that, uh, John. I was talking about charity shops earlier. Kate was on about charity shops saying on behalf of the West Cork Rapid Response Group, she wants to sincerely thank the charity shops all over West Cork who support their cause every year. The West Cork Rapid Response depend on donations and the local charity shops are pivotal to the success and survival of the life-saving work that's done by the West Cork Rapid Response. They're an amazing group. Glad to give you a shout out, uh, Kate. Thank you for that. Hope you're all keeping well. On RTE, Michael says, I think with now the new set of revelations that we heard yesterday from RTE, is it not time for the Garda Fraud Squad to be called in to investigate the comings and goings of this organisation? We've had a drip feed of new revelations over months and months now. How in God's name can someone who's leaving of their own accord get a redundancy package? I've paid my TV licence recently and I have to be honest, I rarely watch TV anymore. I'm actually sorry I didn't get rid of the TV altogether. If this is the standards of our revered national broadcaster, God help our country. Again, it's the top tier are the winners yet again, says Michael. And Kevin Backhurst did say that when he said he was 
disgusted by some of the things that were being revealed uh, yesterday and have been revealed in recent weeks and months. And he very much feels for the workers of RTE on the lower pay scale. He has great sympathy for them because it's got to be absolutely galling for them turning up for work every day. And they're hearing about these golden handshakes. It's got to be really, really difficult indeed. And I mentioned, uh, thank you for that, Michael. I mentioned the inflation uh, continues to slow. It's the third month that the inflation in this country is below 5% and long may that continue. Uh, Somebody says, it's all well and good to hear about those price decreases. But at the end of the day, we still have very high rent costs. We still have very high mortgage prices, high mortgage interest rates. And that will wipe out any tiny benefit that's made from a decrease in the staples in our basket. So much for a sincere, compassionate European Union, our Irish government. We're off to the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket, part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group, where Jane Pickett, our resident vet, joins us. Good afternoon to you, Jane. Good afternoon, Patricia. I was thinking of you this morning when I was going through the papers and I came across a gorgeous story. It's from a family in Bangor in County Down who've been reunited with their pet cat, Blueberry, who went missing more than four years ago. Now, seemingly this cat, she was found in Galway. So she went from Bangor in County Down down to Galway. And it seems this cat had the habit and was prone to jumping into vans and cars. So they reckon... A neighbour, she got into a neighbour's van, took off and of course they didn't know where the cat was and they went searching and searching and then they gave up completely. They thought they wouldn't have a hope of getting their cat cat back. And last week, a vet in Galway gave them a ring because the cat had been living as a stray and an elderly man noticed it was sick, picked it up, brought it to a local vet in Moycullen who scanned it. It had a microchip and they were able to ring the owners and they got the pet back. And I just thought that is living proof what you're always saying about microchipping, even after four years. Yeah, it's an amazing amount of time. And I suppose my heart breaks for owners, you know, when when cats stray and they do sometimes stray and sometimes they like to hop in vans and take a little spin to somewhere else and get lost. You know, getting cats reunited is is really challenging sometimes. I think in in dogs, it's far more common now that, you know, microchipping is, is routine. It's a legal requirement. It's not currently a legal requirement in this country to have your cat microchipped, but it's really, really highly recommended. Um, I think, you know, stories like that where a cat is reunited four years later that would never have happened if that little cat wasn't chipped so taking that simple step to you know visit the vet get your chip your your pet microchipped get the re- get them registered and keep the registration details up to date really is so so powerful and you know can avoid very very sad endings to these stories and give us happy endings like that so that's a brilliant one it is a good one okay straight into questions hi my puppy is five months old and very frightened of everyone and barking at everything cowering when anybody goes near the little pup to try to rub her. She is a cockapoo uh, and now she started eating the wallpaper when we're out. Help, help, help. Okay, so it's a very (laughs) nervous little puppy. A very nervous little puppy. If we have a cockapoo, they are very intelligent because of the poodle in them. But they also, because of the poodle in them, can tend to be very flighty, very kind of anxious. They get quite worked up. Um, So not totally unexpected with this breed. They can be quite highly strung. I think at five months of age, we're really in that period where they're still learning about the world. You know, they've, they've kind of, they're beginning to exit the true, true puppyhood, kind of move into the more adolescent phase. And the big bad world is quite scary sometimes. And sometimes some dog's reaction will to kind of, you know, be to try and keep things away from them by barking, essentially. Um, And it does sound like this pet is quite anxious, fearful. 
I really think that at this stage, you need to try to gently encourage your pet to relax in situations. And the best way of doing that really is to try and give them a good structure of routine of their day because pets love routine. You know, that gives them structure and makes them feel almost safe. So they're happier then to deal with the slightly unexpected things that might happen on top of their routine. So make sure their routine every day, as far in as possible with your own routine, is very concrete. So they get fed at the same time, they go out for their walks at the same time, they go out for their peas and their poos at the same time, they play at the same time. So they, they know what to expect. And I think if you can then slowly try, once they settle a little bit into that, slowly try and introduce them to as many normal things in life as possible. So I suppose, you know, we're kind of leaving that pure puppy stage where they begin to accept everything they're exposed to as normal. So things might be a little bit more challenging now to get them kind of socialised into accepting normal sights and sounds, but it's still absolutely possible. I would think and maybe sit sit with the family and try and draw up a list of everywhere your pet you know goes in the course of their daily life and the things that they might see or hear or encounter there um, or and I suppose everywhere you might want to go with your pet if let's say they haven't been to the seaside before and you want to take them to the seaside put them put that on the list of things that you need to try and work them up to eventually feeling comfortable with and almost kind of make yourself a, a checklist of things that they need to gently calmly and very very gradually be exposed to so that they know that right well I've dealt with this before or I dealt with this or something similar before it wasn't that scary I live to tell the tale I'm with my family I'm secure and then they might relax they may not bark as much they might not show as much kind of fearful anxious stressful behavior um but I really think that getting your home routine down first to give them that sense of security if they are really one of those pets is super highly strong and everything really sets them off you really need to get them used to their home environment and their daily routine first before you start adding things in if you have a particular problem with, let's say, introducing them to new people or to new pets, again, I would do it very gradually. Um, I wouldn't force them into situations. I think the worst thing you can potentially do with a fearful, anxious, stressed pet is overload them with even more. So don't be tempted to kind of just overexpose them to all of the things that they bark at all at once, because that's probably not going to build their confidence. You just need to build their confidence with you guys at home, build their confidence in their routine, and then slowly kind of drift feed add the other bits on top and eventually i'm sure you'll make headway but you have got a, a slightly highly strung breed on your hands so it can yeah, good be a luck little with bit it. challenging okay good luck with it hi uh, could you ask um jane please about other dog food that i can feed my dog danny with danny has gastrointestinal problems she's 11 or he's 11 years old in good health otherwise just outside of this stomach issue he's currently on the royal cannon but it's become very expensive he's a Shih Tzu and I'm wondering is there an alternative that would be a little bit cheaper from Catherine? Okay. Um, okay, so this little pet sounds like it has ongoing GI issues and he's under the care of a vet for it. So the particular food that that listener has mentioned there is a, a prescription food by the sounds of it, if it's the one I'm thinking of. Prescription diets, they are very specific. Um, they tend to be very specific to help manage the problem that the pet has been diagnosed with. And that can actually be quite different across various gut diseases. So let's say one sometimes one gastrointestinal diet may not fit all, depending on what the situation is. So I would say, first and foremost, I'd actually have a chat with your vet about this. Now, I know that can feel a little bit awkward, particularly if you do tend to get that particular food from your vet. Um, but really, honestly, we don't tend to mind talking about these things. And we're very, very used to dealing with 
let's say if there was a, if it wasn't feasible for you to keep buying a particular food, we might be able to know of an alternative that might be suitable for your pet situation that might not be quite as pricey. Or we might be able to say, look, this is really the only thing. Is there other things that we can deprioritize in their care that may not be making as much of an impact? Or conversely, is there potential that, you know, the pet might be able to come off the prescription diet, depending on what the situation with their specific GI disease is? It's very, very individual. Now, there are several brands of these prescription diets available but they're not totally interchangeable so that's why I wouldn't let's say recommend a specific brand or anything just off the cuff because your own vet is going to be the best person to know what's suitable for your pet given their clinical history but please don't be worried about asking them about it please don't feel awkward the vast majority of the time we're very used to this we deal with it every day yeah and, and particularly at the moment with the uh, cost of living uh, costs Absolutely. and let's just Absolutely. stay on a final one on stomach uh, issues uh, a listener two Two-year-old Labrador cross has had diarrhoea for the last two days. Could it just be a stomach bug? He seems to be a bit off his food. Oh, bless them. Two days. If it was just one day and he was otherwise well himself, I'd say maybe he's just got a bit of a tummy upset. But it's been going on for two days now. Could still be a tummy upset. But I think the big red flag there is he's a bit off his food. I think if he's not feeling otherwise well despite the diarrhea, that's a bit of a red flag. You probably need to attend the vet now rather than leaving it linger on. These little guys, I suppose, you know, diarrhea can can vary from just a slightly stoppy stool to, to pure water. And I think the main thing is that it can make them feel a little bit unwell. It's like us if we have a, a dicky tummy, you know, we don't feel brilliant. But these little guys, you know, we can't tell them to sit down and drink some water or, or drink some lemonade to try and keep their hydration up. They're not so great at knowing to do that themselves. And these little guys can get quite dehydrated if it's not managed appropriately. Which is, so I'd say if he's want. off his food, yeah, go okay. and visit the vet. At All right, and uh, apologies to anybody having lunch at the moment. We leave it there, uh, Jane. Thank you for that. Have a good week and uh, we'll speak with Jane again next week. That's Jane Pickett of the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket, part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group. That's where I leave you for today. Thanks to John Paul. Nick up next. Talk to you tomorrow. Ten. Work today on C103. With McCarthy Insurance Group, proud sponsors of the Cork GAA Club Football Leagues and Championships. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.